from Galilee. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It is good to see you. Uh, I'm Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life. And I have the privilege and the joy of beginning our Advent series of sermons. And our Advent series of sermons are on the songs of Christmas. And so over the next four weeks, including this one, we will be exploring together the Magnificat. That's today. Mary's exaltation in the Lord over the expected birth of Jesus Christ. Then the song of Zacharias in response to the birth of John the Baptist. Then the angel's song announcing the birth of Christ. And then Simeon's song of blessing and thanks at having seen the Lord's Christ. And these are songs of exaltation in the Lord, of joy in God's deliverance, and of fulfillment of God's promises. So today, we're going to spend some time dwelling with Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and Mary in Mary's glorious song of God's power and faithfulness. So in order to understand Mary and her relatives in the hill country of Judah, in order to understand what Zacharias prophesies at the birth of John the Baptist, and in order to understand what the shepherds heard the angels sing, to understand the joy of an old man in the temple holding the Lord's Christ, we need to understand what brought the people of Israel to this particular time in history and where exactly this time stands in God's plan of salvation. So we need to understand that. We also need to understand where we're at today. And, you know, we think about this world, and I think about myself, and I think we're considering where we've been in just this one year. And we think about COVID and all the impacts that it's had. We think about the state of racial reconciliation in this country, the the problems that have been highlighted, the the conflicts that that we've seen and maybe even been a part of. Some of us have been sick. Many of us have been lonely, or at least lonelier than we would have been if it wasn't for COVID. We think about relationships that have been hurt and damaged. Uh, We can even be dismayed at at the state of uh, the political situation in our country today. And I'm here to tell you, in this time, it's really worse than you think it is. Let me just read to you John chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. In fact, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 1, and we're going to stay there most of uh, this morning. But John 12 says in verses 31 through 33, Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who is the ruler of this nation, of this world that we're living in? Satan. And if I'm lifted up from the earth, Jesus will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Ephesians chapter two says, he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. The people of this world, we were all dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world, it seems bad, it is bad. The course of this world is people who are dead in trespasses that when you walk according to the course of this world, you're walking in death and in trespass. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we're about to read together a song of joy. We're about to spend some time dwelling with some joyful people. And I will tell you, our situation today isn't worse than their situation then. There is joy to be had in the Lord. There is joy to be had in God's word. And we're going to be able to see that this morning. There might not be a lot of joy to be found in our circumstances, at least the circumstances that are closest to us, the ones that we can see and feel and touch. But there is joy to be found in the Lord. And so we're going to look for that. And we're going to ask the Lord to show that to us today. So in this sermon, we're going to divide the next few minutes into number one, the context and setting of this song. And then number two, the content of this song and the pervading theme of joy in the Lord. And so remember that. The theme of this song is joy in the Lord. And then we'll look at the implications of this song and the birth of Christ to us at this Christmas time in December and now November 2020. So one, the context of the song, Two, the content of the song. And then three, the implications of this song and the implications of Christ's birth. And to really understand this text and to live out its truths, we're going to need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help. So let's bow and pray and do that. Heavenly Father, we trust in you. We trust in your love for us. We trust in your mercy for us. And... We trust in your word, so we we take you at your word. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to understand, and so we ask for that. We need wisdom to lead out, to live out your truths, and so we ask for that too. I pray that we we would come to you humbly, that we would receive your word, we would accept it, that we would we would trust in it and live it out, and that we would help each other do that as your body, and that you would be glorified as we love each other, as we encourage each other, and as we help each other. People would know that we are yours. And so be in this time. I pray that your spirit would preach your word to me. Your spirit would preach your word to all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of Mary's song. And as you're listening... Just remember that the context I'm laying out is going to help you understand the next several sermons because this context will be applicable to Zacharias' song, to the angel's song, to Simeon's song. So Mary, she was from Nazareth, a city in the northern province of Galilee, somewhat far away from Jerusalem. And so as I'm reading, as you're reading, what are we thinking? What was life like for her? What concerns did she have for her future? Did she experience peace, comfort? What things might worry her about her life and future, besides being a pregnant virgin, of course? How did her city and her nation view themselves? The people around her, what were they thinking? What were they concerned about? So we need to look a little further back in the history of Israel to get some of these questions answered. So the Israelites saw themselves as the chosen people of God, sons of Abraham, heirs to the promises and covenants of God. But their experiences could cause them to doubt, and their experiences would certainly not impress the peoples around them. Let me just go through a little bit of their history. The Jews entered the promised land about 1400 B.C., so about 1400 years earlier than the time of this passage. The time of the judges after they entered the promised land 
lasted about 300 years until 1100 BC approximately. And that's when Saul became king. And at that point, to these, these Israelites, to the Jewish nation, the chosen people of God, they finally possessed most of the land God had promised them. They were becoming more powerful and wealthier. Then David became king, and then Solomon became king after him until Solomon died around 975. And then what happened? This kingdom, the holy people of God, this nation split, and decline began rapidly. Decline in power, in wealth, in devotion to God. The people of God experienced a golden age of only a few years, only around 100 years. This, the chosen people of God, Mary's looking back in time, and they have this golden age where not all the promises had been fulfilled yet, but they could see them happening, and it only lasted about 100 years. What happens after the kingdom splits? The northern kingdom was destroyed around 720 B.C. Judah, the southern kingdom, was defeated and exiled around 600 B.C. The Jews were able to return to their land from 500 to 450 B.C., but they're a weak and a fragile nation still holding on to the promises of God, but they're dominated by powerful neighbors in Egypt to the south, in Syria to the north from 500 to 160 BC. You're holding on to promises, you're looking back at the golden age, but your experience isn't matching up to the fulfillment of those promises yet. But then in 160 BC, a Levite family, the Maccabees, led a revolt against the Syrian overlords. This is probably 140 years before Mary was born. Israel was free. The temple was cleansed. They're free to worship God and see the fulfillment of the promises of God. But just 100 years after this independence, the Romans came in and conquered the land. The Israelites were divided. They were fighting among themselves. One faction sought an alliance with Rome. And so 40 or so years before Mary was born, Israel was again a conquered nation. This is what she's living in. And then an Idumean king, Herod, was appointed over them by the Romans. So Idumean, he's an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, ruled over the nation of Israel. So she's in a land where more people are dying of sickness and disease than are dying of sickness and disease today, even though we have, an, have a pandemic where we despair over political fights She's living in a conquered nation, and still her people are fractured. There's still conflicts with the people around them, the Edomites who are ruling over them, the Romans. There's conflicts within between Pharisees, Sadducees. And so Mary is living in a time where there appears not to be much to be joyful about. She's surrounded by people who longed for the fulfillment of God's promises, the way we long for the fulfillment of God's promises. They longed for the promised Messiah to save them. Not so much to save them from their sins, probably, but at least to save them from their situation. And those promises seem far off. But then, in the sixth month of that year, an angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth and spoke to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph. So there's a historical context, but there's a deeper context we need to be aware of. Some Jews may have felt forgotten, but God had a plan of salvation that encompassed them and then the entire world. And this plan begins with the phrase in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so here at Covenant Life, we use some pamphlets to help us remember and tell key elements of God's salvation story. And I just brought one, or actually I brought three up here with me. Here's the story. There's copies of the story on our information table in the back of the main hall and the east hall. In the story, we remember God created everything, and it was good, including man. We were just as we were created to be. But the first man and woman chose not to believe. They chose not to believe what God said. They chose rebellion. They did not trust God. They did not have faith in God, and instead sinned and locked mankind into a fallen state in a fallen and broken world. So that's one way of telling the story. 
we use the three circles, and many of you have probably seen this pamphlet or the website. In the three circles description of the same thing, we learn God's created design was perfect, but man's sin created brokenness, and we live in that brokenness today. So you can see it all around you. You can see it in the way men relate to each other. You can see it in the way disease ravages this world. You can see it inside you when you do things that you do not want to do, but you sin anyway, you choose sin. Mary could see that brokenness around her. Mary could see that brokenness in her. We have another pamphlet, Two Ways to Live, and it's also out there on the, uh, on the tables for you. In Two Ways to Live, the created world was perfect, God ruled, and man had a right relationship with God. God ruled over man, he gave man dominion over the earth. But man rebelled, rejecting God's rule. So in each of these different ways to describe the plan of salvation, we see man deserved death, he deserved the wrath of God for his sin. We deserve death and wrath for our sin because we're part of this broken world and then we keep living in sin. And this is the world that Mary was born into. So as we're reading about this, we're reading in a book that was written by a man named Luke. He's a Gentile, non-Jewish companion of the Apostle Paul. He recorded this account for us. He wrote this book after investigating everything thoroughly, chapter 1, verse 3. He wrote it out along with the book of Acts in consecutive order. And his words were inspired, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing the accuracy of this record. So, what are Mary and the people of Israel waiting for? There's some pictures of that that will be spelled out next week in Zacharias' prayer, and Justin will be preaching that. I want to mention just a few of those now. In Zacharias' prayer, beginning in chapter 1, verse 68, he prophesies that God's work for his people is like the opening of a prison door. A people in chains will be set free. And so many of us probably don't have that feeling of being locked up, of being in chains or our experience is very small. But you can start to imagine that. Um, in military survival training, you get a little tiny experience of being locked up and in chains. And I can tell you, even in that tiny experience, you look forward to the time when the door opens, where the chains are taken off. You're free to breathe. You're free to do what you want. That's a picture from Zacharias' prayer. He also says the redemption of his people is like the total victory of a battle won over fierce and evil enemies. You just think about that, battles in those days. A wound usually meant maiming or death. A defeat in battle usually meant you were killed or enslaved and your families were killed or enslaved. That has happened to Israel. That was going to happen to Israel again. Zacharias says the salvation is like a debt that was completely canceled living under a burden of you owing something you can't pay, but those sins are forgiven. And all of this is like the dawning of a new day. Verse 78 says, the sunrise from on high will visit them. And if you just think about dark nights. And I've, I've, I've worked through long dark nights where things seemed hard and seemed, things seemed lost. And then the sun rises, your outlook brightens. You've made it through the night. There's a dawning of a new day. That's what the coming of the Lord is like. I only mention this uh, for two reasons. It paints a picture of what this nation was waiting for. And so I, I mention it to you, one, because Justin is preaching on this next week. So it's fun just to mess with him a little bit and steal some of his thunder. And then I also figure if I, if I preach a little bit of this, it might shave two to three minutes off a sermon, which I also think is a good thing. So, so uh, there's a, a person who was writing a hymn about 45 years ago, described the world situation back then. It also described our situation now. It also describes Mary's situation and Elizabeth's situation. The name of that song is Be Ye Glad. And the first verse and the chorus of that song goes something like this. It says, in these days of confused situations and in these nights of restless remorse, when the heart and the soul of a nation lay wounded and cold as a corpse, from the grave of the innocent Adam comes a song bringing joy 
to the sad. Oh, your cry has been heard and the ransom has been paid up in full. Be ye glad. So be ye glad, be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. So this is the context of Mary's song, of this exaltation in the Lord. This is where Mary and the nation of Israel were at. This is where we are at. We can be glad even in the midst of some sorrows. So let's look at the content of Mary's exaltation. And now we're in Luke 1, and you can read with me starting in verse 39. Now at this time, Mary set out and went in a hurry to the hill country of Judah. I'm sorry, to the hill country, to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary travels the 70 to 90 miles from Nazareth to the hill country of Judah to visit her relative, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth had miraculously conceived a child in her old age. Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, was priest, and he was chosen by lot, by chance, to offer incense in the holy place in the temple. And this was a great honor and responsibility, and a priest could only perform this duty once in a lifetime. So Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments. Their one unfulfilled desire was for a child. And while Zacharias was performing his duties in the holy place, an angel appeared to him and told him he and his wife would have a child in their old age. Zacharias expressed some doubts, and the angel pronounced Zacharias would be unable to speak until the child was born. So Zacharias returned home. And after this time, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And the child Elizabeth was bearing was John the Baptist. He'd be filled with the Spirit while in his mother's womb, chapter 1, verse 14. He'd be the forerunner of the Messiah, chapter 1, verse 17. And he would herald the Messiah, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And these two women met in Elizabeth's home. So let's go on. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that my mother, or I'm sorry, that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth is a great example of how to receive our Lord. So let's just look at how she does this. First, she receives Mary and her baby, Jesus Christ, with humility. Listen to her words. How has it happened to me? You can hear the awe, the humble incredulousness of her exclamation. Second, she welcomed Mary and the Lord with joy. Joy is expressed in Elizabeth's greeting. Even the baby in her womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy. And we know this is true because Elizabeth spoke this while filled with the Spirit. And the author of this gospel was inspired when he recorded this. So these events begin with joy and continue through the end of the song. There's rejoicing throughout the song. Joy is the theme of this passage. Joy is the theme of this passage. In verse 14, the angel said to Zacharias that you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice over his birth. Elizabeth expresses her joy in verses 41 and 40 through 45. And John the Baptist, while being filled with the Spirit, as the angel told his father, responds joyously. So it is good to receive the Lord in humility. It is good to receive the Lord in joy. Third, Elizabeth receives the Lord with sound doctrine. And I'm going to talk more of this later, but just look at the doctrine she testifies to. The mother of my Lord. Mary Mary was carrying the Savior, the Messiah, of whom Elizabeth's son would be the forerunner. And then Elizabeth in her next utterance said, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth speaks of a simple faith 
and what the Lord has said. Then fourth, Elizabeth felt compelled to tell of her joy. She had to exclaim her joy to her young relative Mary. She finishes her greeting with the first recorded beatitude of the Gospels. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And this is just a side note. This beatitude stands in stark contrast with the last recorded beatitude in the Gospels when Jesus was correcting Thomas, who doubted Jesus' resurrection, who said he would believe when he can see for himself and touch for himself. Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I think Jesus was speaking of us then. He could also have been speaking of Elizabeth and Mary. So we're at the time, right before the Savior is going to appear. Zachariah's song at the birth of John the Baptist expresses what the Savior's coming would be like, those metaphors. That song I told you about, Be Ye Glad, describes this same moment in the second verse, this, this moment where in verse 1, salvation was heard of. It was, it was proclaimed. It was expected. In, in verse 2, salvation is accomplished from the jail cell. This is told from the jail cell of a condemned sinner. So from the dungeon, a rumor is stirring. And you've heard it again and again. But this time, the cell key is turning. And outside, their faces of friends. And though your body lay weary from wasting, and your eyes show the sorrow they've had. But the love that your heart is now tasting has opened the gates. Be glad. So be glad, be glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be glad, be glad, be glad. So the gate's about to open. It's time for Mary to express her joy her joy in, in her song, the Magnificat. And she speaks of joy for herself in verses 46 through 49, joy for us in verses 50 through 53, and joy for Israel in verses 54 and 55. We've already read of Zacharias and Elizabeth's joy. We've read of John the Baptist's prenatal joy. And now it's Mary's turn to sing. So take a look at uh, verse 46, and we'll start there. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's song exalts the Lord. It magnifies the Lord. The Latin version of this word is where we get the name of this passage, the Magnificat. Mary's song is similar to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah was granted a son in her old age, the prophet Samuel. And this passage begins to show us some remarkable things about Mary. She believed God's word through the angel Gabriel that she would carry the Savior. She also knew the scripture. Almost every word or idea she says in this song can be found in the Old Testament. From 1 Samuel, from the Psalms, the prophets, and Job. And Mary gives three, three very important reasons for her joy. And look at, look at the first reason for her joy in verse 47. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, God has Savior. She was in peril of living and dying without a Savior. The nation of Israel could be wiped out by powerful enemies. They were praying for a Messiah to lead them, to save them. And Mary can rejoice in God, her Savior. She can also rejoice for another reason. Why? Because God chose her. Mary saw herself rightly as God's bond slave. She receives her Lord in humility as a slave. The disposition of God's bond slave has been called the highest office to which a Christian can aspire. Paul calls himself and many of his helpers bond slaves of Christ. James and Jude, Bible writers and Jesus' own brothers called themselves bond slaves of Christ. So did the apostles Peter and John. Mary, 
a humble bond slave who faithfully followed God, who knew God's word, expresses joy because God chose her. Mary also rejoiced because God did great things for her. And just imagine if you were in Mary's position. Imagine if God saved you. Imagine if God chose you. Imagine if God has done great things for you. If you understood your position rightly and you understood who God is and what he has done, joy would have to be your reaction. I think if we really understand who we are and who God is and we turn in faith to God, joy will be the natural reaction of our souls. It was the reaction of Mary's soul. In humility, she recognized her God. She reacted in joy and then she spoke of what God had done for her. So what an example to us. An example of how to find joy in the right things. You remember that history of Israel. You remember that salvation context. Mary was able to find joy because her joy is founded in sound doctrine. Her joy is founded in scripture. It's founded in simple faith in the Lord. So in this Christmas season, the year two, I'm sorry, 2020, we can try to find joy in the trappings of the way this world celebrates Christmas. And I've done that some. Tried to find joy in food. Tried to find a lot of joy in food over, over time. Try to find joy in decorations. Try to f- find joy in traditions. Or, this is probably where I, I, uh, I sin the most, we can make idols of good things. Like time with family and the giving of gifts. And we can elevate joy found in those things above our joy in the Lord. And those things are gifts given to us by the creator. They're not the creator themselves. True joy is going to be found in the Lord. Our joy is going to be a fruit of our salvation. A fruit of the Holy Spirit within us. A fruit that is not dependent upon anything in this world, but only dependent upon the salvation that God chose us for and accomplished in Christ Jesus. So church, we're tempted to find joy in the things of the world. Do not do it. Do not make idols of things that are not God, not your marriages, not the church you belong to, not your wealth, not your children, not your abilities. Your joy is to be a fruit of your salvation, a fruit of the Holy Spirit within you. So let's continue reading, beginning in verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He's done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, has exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary's just here from expressing the reasons for her joy to expressing what God has done for all of us. In this song, this song of joy, uh, eight times Mary will use the phrase in King James where I used to read it, God hath or he hath. This is a song of the things that God has done. And these are things we can find joy in along with Mary, along with the nation of Israel, along with the world. In these verses, we see that God grants mercy to those who fear him. This is an important verse in this song, and it emphasizes for us the need to worship God in sound doctrine. God loves the world. He shows mercy on those who fear him. I said earlier that almost every idea and phrase in this song could be found in the Old Testament. And this phrase can be found in Psalm 103, verse 17. So please turn with me to Psalm 103. I wish I had time to read the entire psalm. And so I do recommend that you read this passage today, or at least this Christmas season, especially if you are having a family Advent celebration. The first week of Advent is what? It's the week of hope. This psalm will give you hope. And I'll recap part of the chapter, and then we're going to read verse 17. 
So Psalm 103 begins with David saying, bless the Lord my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then he reminds us not to forget any of God's benefits and he starts listing some of them. God pardons all our guilt. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with favor and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things. Your youth is renewed like an eagle. He performs righteous deeds and judgments for those who are oppressed. Skipping down, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. Verse 10, he's not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our guilty deeds. So great is his mercy toward those who fear him. He's mindful of us, verse 15. You know, man, his days are like grass, like the flowers of the field. But soon it's gonna be no more. And then he gets to verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. His mercy is from everlasting for those who fear him. David, inspired by God, said it. And a little over a thousand years later, one of David's descendants, a pregnant young virgin, visiting her relative in the hills of Judah, repeated the same thing. God's mercy is infinite, from everlasting to everlasting. His love extends to all, but his mercy extends to those who fear him. This word fear means reverential awe. Those who fear God, those who hold God God in reverential awe, are those who know God, who know they need God's mercy and look to God for their salvation. They've given up trying to justify themselves and they have received God's mercy. So we can be joyful because God showed mercy to us. But Mary sings of another reason for our joy in verses 51 through 53. God has done mighty deeds for us. Just look at what Mary describes as God's work on our behalf. Six things God did for his people and does for his people. One, he scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. God has done this throughout the Old Testament. So just remember some of the Old Testament stories. Remember Pharaoh. Remember Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the nation of Israel herself where God scatters her, brings her low. Number two, he brings down rulers. I mentioned some in the Old Testament. You can think of others. He still does that today. Just listen to this from Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Kings and leaders today, their heart, their purposes are like a hose in God's hands. He points it wherever he will. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Who rules over the nations? God does. Kings and leaders, whether they know it or not, are in God's hands, are in submission to God. Number three of his mighty deeds, he exalts those who are humble. Remember Moses, he was proud. God humbled him and then exalted him again and used him for great things. God exalted his humble servant, Daniel, preserving his life, giving him favor with the king. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, humbled himself to save us and then was exalted. Mary and Elizabeth from our passage today are examples of humble people exalted and blessed by God. And you can be joyful because for, in verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, do not worry then saying, what are we to eat? What are we to drink? Or what are we to wear for clothing? Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for the heavenly father knows that you need all these things. You, but you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has trouble of its own. He feeds the hungry. He feeds his people. He not just feeds us, he fills us. And then five, he sends away the rich empty-handed. And if you're like me, you've, you've read through the New Testament maybe a few times or at least sections of it. You've heard it preached. 
And I'm here to tell you, you do not want to be a rich person in the New Testament. They do not make out very well at all. They are condemned. They are going to to hell. They are receiving the the judgment that they deserve. And I just want to remind you of this from James chapter 5, what God says about the rich. The rich that according to Mary and the Holy Spirit, he sends away empty-handed. Come now, rich people, James 5 verse 1. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become a moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. And their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Skip down to verse 5. You've lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance. God does not respect worldly riches. He does not approve of people who seek after riches to enjoy riches above seeking after God. And then six, the sixth great deed that he has accomplished for his people and for us. He's helped his people Israel, giving them reason to rejoice. And he did this not based on Israel's performance, They were an unfaithful people, but he helped them in remembrance of his mercy, just as he promised to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. God continues to fill that promise to the church. God's people are no longer only of the physical descent of Abraham. The church has been grafted in. Jesus lived and died not just for Israel, but for all of us, so that those who fear God can be the people of God. So, that's the content of the song. So what does it mean for us? How, are we going, how is this song going to be applied to our life? As we're considering Mary's song, as we're reading it, as we're praying over it, as the Holy Spirit is ministering to us in the song, how are we going to walk out of this building? How are we going to spend this Christmas season? How are we going to spend the rest of, their, rest of our lives? And so I just want to suggest four things that seem evident from this passage and leave us with these four things. First, I think it's clear we are to rejoice with Mary. Our Savior has come. Mary rejoiced because her God saved her and chose her and has done great things for her. And if you are a Christian, if you fear God, if you hold God in reverential awe, God has saved you. And you have every reason to rejoice. You deserve death. And instead you received mercy. God sent his son to be humbled. And to suffer your punishment. So that you can enjoy friendship. And peace with God. And then also like Mary. God chose you. From before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless. Before him. You are chosen by God. If you belong to Christ. God did great things for you. So you should be joyful. I mean, I look at circumstances around me. I look at circumstances close to home. I look at myself at a holiday where I'm in one place and maybe loved family members are in another place. And I start to, you know, I feel disappointed. I feel discontent. I feel some sadness. But the fact is, God saved me. He chose me. He's done great things for me. He continues to do great things for me. I have a lot to be joyful about, and so do you if you belong to him. In fact, if you aren't joyful, you should search your heart. Ask yourself these questions. Do you fear God? Has he saved you? That is the most important question you will ever answer. If you do belong to God, if you fear him, and he has shown mercy to you, be joyful. Rejoice. If you're a believer and you search yourself and you can't be joyful, ask yourself what you're allowing to crowd out your joy. What are you worshiping? What are you focusing on, thinking on, meditating on? What are you elevating above devotion to Christ? Because Christians, you do have every reason to rejoice. Number two, what can we do? We can receive this good news with humility. God exalts the humble practice humility. Be like Elizabeth. Be like Mary. 
be like John the Baptist, who did not exalt himself, but exalted the one who followed him. He exalted the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, humbly consider who Christ is, what he has done, and then throw yourself on his mercy like many of us have done. So you remember these gospel pamphlets? I mentioned them earlier. And again, we have several that are out in the foyer in both buildings. In the story, I spoke of the creation and the fall. In three circles, I spoke of God's design and the brokenness caused by man's sin. In two ways to live, I spoke of God's perfect rule, usurped by man's rebellion. So different ways of describing the same thing. Christ came to remedy the brokenness and restore God's design. Adam sinned. We continue to sin. We deserve death. But God sent his son so that through one perfect sacrifice, God himself would satisfy his own wrath and save those who fear him. Here's how Paul puts this most important truth in Romans 5. And you can turn to Romans 5 with me. I'm going to skip a few verses, but I really want us to see verses 18 through 21. Beginning in verse 6, he says, While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Skipping down to verse 8. He demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned, he's talking about that fall, how sin entered through one man, which sounds hard, maybe even sounds unfair, but we see the reverse of that principle. Skip down to verse 18. So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind, so also through one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to that. We obtain this salvation by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it'll tell you in the story. Same thing. By repenting of our sin and believing in Christ for our salvation. Two ways to live puts it the same way. We submit to God again, accept his grace and his free gift of salvation. So Christ died and rose again so that we could experience God's mercy. Third, how do we respond? Worship and rejoice in sound doctrine. Elizabeth and Mary knew God's word and believed. They trusted God and they ordered their lives around what he said. So rejoice in the right things. Rejoice in God's character. Rejoice in God's deeds, in God's mercy. Let your joy be set. Don't let your joy be found in the sinful things of the world. Don't let your joy be found even in the good things that you've elevated above God, things you've made an idol. Worship and rejoice in sound doctrine. Read the word. Commit yourself to know the word. Commit yourself to believe what you've read. Commit yourself to walk out and live by what you know. Fourth, tell the world. Sing it out. You don't know how? I would say emulate your pastors. Take one of these gospel booklets, like that one. Read it. Study it. It's not very long. It's just a few pages. It'll take you just a few minutes. Practice repeating it to yourself. Practice repeating it to a friend, somebody you know in this church. Ask your community group for help. It's really not that hard to take a little pamphlet that's eight pages long and to read it and study it and to know it. And then to practice saying it, just so you can hear yourself saying the words. Practice saying it to somebody else. And then commit yourself to sharing that story with at least one other person this season. Do not keep this good news to yourself. 
you can share the gospel. In this church, we can help each other share the gospel. So let's do that. Uh, as you share the gospel, don't worry about the result. That's all in God's hands anyway. So carry the message of Mary's song to the world. Here's a summary of the, of the whole message of the song, of the gospel, from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So I'm going to close with the last verse of the song, Be Ye Glad. So the writer composed the first verse, telling of our need for a Savior. The second verse, about our salvation being accomplished. And the third verse is a call to tell the world. And it goes like this. So be like lights on the rim of the water, giving hope in a storm sea of night. Be a refuge amidst the slaughter of these fugitives in their plight. For you are timeless and part of a puzzle. You are winsome and young as a lad, and there is no disease or no struggle that can keep you from God. Be glad. So be glad, be glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the blood of the lamb. Be glad, be glad, be glad. So let's take a moment of silence. Consider your response to Mary's Holy Spirit-inspired song. Search your heart. Really search your heart. Let this passage speak to you. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Please see me after the service if you've placed your faith solely in Christ for the first time. Or you can speak to any of our other pastors or any of, our, any of the members of this church. For all of us, come to God in humility. Pray that he will help you find your joy solely in him. And then commit yourself to go and tell the good news. Let's pray.